Welcome to episode 184 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up at the nighttime sky and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. Happy New Year, Shane, and Happy New Year to all our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Same to you, Chris, and, and to everybody who's listening. Um, here we are, 2022. Who would have thunk it? Yep, yep. Who so, any, any New Year's resolutions, like serious? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So still want to see Sirius B. Um, but yeah, outside of that, I just want to, <laughs> I just want to get to some dark skies. Um, 2021 was not good for me in that regard. And uh, I just need to make it a higher priority for 2022. Yeah, no, that sounds, uh, it never seems like enough. I mean, I basically mm-hmm. lived at my dark sky site this summer. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, pretty much uh, three nights a week on average and uh, get out to grasslands uh, two times and a couple other places a couple times. And yeah, it just seems like, seems like uh, you can never spend enough time under, under the darkest skies. So that's yeah, always the way it goes. Yeah. Yeah. And as always too, there's the, you know, the weather conditions, like, you know, we had the smoke and the heat this last summer. So I'm just hoping that everything kind of aligns this year that, yeah. you know, weather pandemics, all this other stuff that seems to get in the way of observing is, uh, you know, less of an issue this year. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully. So how was, uh, I think you were off this week as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was off this week. Um, I did get out one night to do a little bit of observing, oh, and, good. uh, it was more of a, it was more of a test the cold gear night. <laughs> I would say. Cause it's, uh, it's been cold here, Chris. I'm not sure yeah. if you, yeah. if you knew that, but <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. It's been brutal. I, it, we broke records. I mean, so that people know, like we live in a cold place, um, seeing the temperatures, uh, go below minus 40 Celsius, which I think is the same in Fahrenheit anyway. Um, but, uh, we, we broke some records, I think for both, uh, temperature and, and duration and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. I, I thought I heard of one, like I think Friday, cause our, our daytime high was like negative 31 or something like that. And I thought that was some kind of a record, but I'm not too sure. Yeah. Typically we don't go quite as cold this early or something like that, which surprised me. I think, I think we just barely broke them, but there was one day we were at minus 38. Um, and that's before the wind chill. And then of course, uh, yeah, it, uh, it was much colder with the wind. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, um, I also bought some newer winter boots, um, uh, cause my feet are always an issue, you know, when I'm observing my hands and my feet are always the issues and, um, the purpose. So Wednesday night I went out for about 30 minutes and just did a binocular session in the backyard. Um, it was about, uh, like, yeah, it was negative 31 that night without the wind. And, um, there was a bit of a wind, although I was pretty well sheltered. So it really, it didn't bother me too much. It swirled a little bit. Um, but I, I put on the, uh, the heated jacket and then, um, like I have, uh, I, I, there's two jackets that I usually wear to work, um, uh, at this time of the year. And it's just like a, a down jacket and then, uh, like a bit of a winter parka over top of that. So those two layers went over top of the heated jacket and it's, it's not my warmest, uh, arrangement. Um, but I wanted to see how this did. Uh, I put on some snow pants and, uh, my new winter boots 
And I just sat in a chair and I didn't move for 30 minutes, uh, you know, just to simulate what it would be like really observing in cold weather where you're, you're really not moving much or generating your own body heat. Um, and, and just to see if I could get cold. <laughs> um, and I got to say it was, uh, it was, it was outstanding actually. Like mm. I was so comfortable outside. It blew my wow. mind. Yeah, that's uh, good. The, the only thing that really got cold were my hands. And, um, so I, I think, that's the last little bit for me to solve. So mm. I, I could have stayed out for a lot longer if my hands would have been able to, uh, to stay warmer, but I just panned around the Hyades and the Pleiades and sort of that whole Eastern sky. Um, it was, yeah. it was actually a fun little session. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. No, I, I didn't go out. It's, uh, you know, I, I pretty much just go to dark sky site and, uh, the, just even the driving around has been great. It's been a little bit, uh, the roads here are pretty icy and, uh, yeah, getting getting out there could be, well, it's, it can be dangerous out there, even in the best of times, I suppose. But at minus forty, it's uh, ill advised to to go out there. You'd never get out of the wind out there either. There's nothing. No, no, your spot there is pretty exposed, so you would uh, you'd be a little chilly. Although yeah. you know, I guess maybe the saving grace might be like if it's northwesterlies, which it normally is this time of the year. Um, you might have a little bit of protection, but, um, oh. I think you'd still feel it. Yeah. Boy, I don't think it'd be any, any good. Um, yeah, cool. Anything else? Did you try your new, uh, uh, Nikon digiscoping eyepiece or whatever it was? No, no, it was, uh, the, bino- or the, uh, telescope stayed indoors. Um, uh, it was just binoculars, uh, really because of the cold. I did not want to mess around with setting up and taking down the telescope and moving it around. And, yeah. you know, at, at those temperatures too, um, focusers often lock up, like things just don't work well. Um, even yep. the mounts, right? Like the, the, uh, alt as axis would probably lock up on me and, um, it's just not that fun. So, you know, when I do these really cold sessions with binoculars, the first thing I do real quickly is set the focus on the binoculars. Cause even that will usually lock up, um, you know, once they kind of cool off outside. Yeah. Um, so get the focus right. And then just sit back and enjoy the views. Yeah. Like I couldn't even get my binoculars focused up like hardly the last time I went out, like I'd started to focus by the time I was even three quarters focused, they were already seizing. Oh, <laughs> like wow. it's, it's, I mean, it's just getting that cold, you know, uh, anyway. So, yeah. So other than that, yeah. So, uh, I'm off this week as well. And I think, you know, that, and that's pretty common, I think in, uh, some parts of Canada anyway, I think it's a little bit more common out here than maybe in like, uh, Ontario or, or other spots, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, sort of nice to have, have, uh, have a week off around the holidays. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really nice to just have some time away to, uh, recharge and, and really not have to go out very much in the cold weather. Oh man. Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, I end up reviewing my, my next RESC journal article, which is coming out in February. They've been pretty scattershot at, at getting them done. I think they're having some challenges there and what they want to do with the journal or whatever. And, I noticed that uh, some of my articles aren't even getting the proper titles. They're like just carrying over the previous table of contents and not changing the title. So I think there's like, I think for a year I was observing in Coma Berenices or something, <laughs> so, <laughs> according, according to the title, which is unfortunate because I was looking and I wrote, I wrote an article, which I think is one of the better ones on, on web back in the spring. And 
they put the wrong title on uh, on the table of contents, right title in in the pages. But uh, that kind of stuff I always find uh, a bit a bit disappointing because probably more people. Well, there's hardly any probably about it. I think more people listen to the podcast. So if I do something on the podcast. Um, I think more people listen to it and I get more feedback on that. If I do something in the journals, then it's like, yeah, uh, maybe I should put more effort into doing another episode for the podcast or something like that. Start thinking about uh, where I'm, where I'm putting my energies, but, uh, but anyway, I, I sent it off and, you know, one of the weird things this is weird. I never noticed this before, but you know, and, and maybe, maybe other people have noticed this and I just haven't, but when you write like an eyepiece, say, say you're writing about, I don't know, like a, like a 12 millimeter eyepiece, just, just for example, when, when you write that out, if you're posting to a, um, like a cloudy nights forum, Shane, or you're writing me a, an email or you're putting it in show notes, how would you write that? 12 millimeter? Like 12 millimeter, like how would you? The number one, the number two, and then MM following. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, like I, I, I'm, I'm there with you. That's how I've always written it. But, you know, and even looking around like on Sky and Telescope and that, they write it as one, two, space MM. They put these spaces in. Mm, yeah. Which, yeah. Which I never, I never would have done. So I was looking at my article and I came back and I'm like, what are all these spaces doing in here? And there's like some weird formatting that, that they, they do with that. I think that's, that feels unconventional to me, despite it being apparently the convention. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. have seen it both ways. Um, I guess each to their own. Yeah. It seems odd to me too. And then when I looked in the, uh, when I looked in the uh, sky and telescope, I did notice that, uh, that at least in the one thing I saw in there, it was, it was the same thing had the, uh, had the spaces in it. So Anyway, who knows? Well, time to find the the de facto writing style guide and adhere to their rules. Yeah, it's just it's just strange though. I never noticed that before. And uh, anyway, hey, while while on the topic of Rask, have you received your 2022 handbook yet? No, yeah, me either. Just a little dis. dis you haven't either, eh? Yeah, because I was uh, so you know. Spoiler, I guess, for the second episode this week, we're going to talk about meteorites. So I thought, you know, I better just refresh myself uh, on the page numbers in the Observer's Handbook where they talk about meteorites. And then it dawned on me that I hadn't received the 2022 copy yet. So, yeah, I just wanted to see if you had. I, I guess they must be behind in shipping them. Yeah. Um, so my understanding is this, uh, sitting on the editorial board for the RSC, <laughs> and I did recently ask uh, the, the current editor again on this, and uh, it, it turns out that what they, what they did, and I knew they were doing this back in, oh man, this was probably back, well, it was either late spring or extremely early summer, um, but they were talking about switching um, publishers. Okay. Mm. So they got a, they got a better deal on publishers. And now I, I really, for, for some reason, it, I, I end up not getting included on some emails. There's, it's a volunteer organization. I'm going to say that I'm not going to complain about it or anything. Cause that's just the way it goes in volunteer organizations. But um, it ended up being that it was decided not to switch publishers for the calendar. And uh and there were, we had some hesitation even before that decision was made. And I expressed my hesitation as well, because of course, what, what can happen is that you can get into these delays. And uh, when you switch publishers for whatever reason, you know, you're promised the world and huge savings. And often 
the reality of that is is not uh, not as good. Um, and that's what they ran into with the handbook, I think. So I'm curious to see what it's what it's like when I get my copies because I as a contributor I get two copies and last year we gave one away. We'll we'll see what happens this year if we uh, if we see it. And I know they're getting it in the states and uh, I did talk to the editor and he said that basically they're on their way, they're on their way, kind of thing. But uh, I, I don't know. I hear people in Ottawa getting them and different things like that. It, I find it kind of confusing when you know I feel like you know in Canada here if it arrives in the middle of the country, it, it really shouldn't take more than a few days, whether they're going to Ottawa from Toronto or going to, you know, Regina from, from Toronto. Um, you probably shouldn't see more than a week's discrepancy in, in the landing time. So I'm not really sure how or why that would be. My only assumption is that they sh- ship out the largest orders first. And in a way that makes sense so that, you know, the largest number of people receive them sooner and, uh, but anyway, we, we, I guess I was just told to continue to hold tight. I was surprised because I did see that people in the States were getting theirs and some other people in Canada were getting theirs, but I hadn't, hadn't seen my copies yet. Hmm. Well, good to know. Good to know. So you, uh, you got a book this week, um, a book that we've both ordered and, uh, I'm curious about it. So this book I was, this was on my to buy list for an awful long time. Mm-hmm. It's called Hartung's H A R T U N G apostrophe S Astronomical Objects for Southern Telescopes, a handbook for amateur observers. This is the second edition, revised and illustrated by David Mallon and David J. Frew, who are well known um, imagers and, and visual observers. I got it right here, so I'm kind of flipping through it. Um, there is, there's a lot to like about this book, a lot more than, um, you know, I kind of teased you in, in, our, in our preamble conversation. There's a lot more to like in this book than I think uh, what, uh, what you're going to think just, just when you're looking at the order page. So, well, maybe just I'll back up for a second. So I'd been looking for the book for some time and uh Typically, the book is for sale used. Um, it hasn't really been printed, and I'll clarify this in a moment. It hasn't been printed in some time, I think maybe 15 or 20 years or something like that. So my understanding is when a book is in that situation that uh, you're, you're buying a used book. And as we know, Shane, these used astronomy books can be rather pricey. Yep. Yep, because there's usually not many of them printed, and then when they're gone, they're gone forever. <laughs> yeah, so there may only be—I'm just like going to throw a number out. Maybe there's 500 copies ever printed, and then the demand is for 600 copies at all times. So it's like no matter what what was printed, the demand is slightly more than the number of books, which just pushes the prices sometimes to pretty exorbitant and ridiculous levels. I, I mean, it seems like things ebb and flow, but it's, it's not uncommon to see a book that costs, I mean, I've seen books that cost $30 new um, when I bought them. Um, and I, I've seen them for as much as like, say, $600, you know, for example. And I think, why didn't I buy two copies? Why don't I buy two copies whenever I buy these things? And again, here we go. I didn't buy two copies because I was able to get a brand new copy of Harting's Astronomical Objects for Southern Telescopes because Melbourne University Press... Um, was uh, informed, and they hold the uh, 
I don't know, that's not a patent, but I guess they hold the copyright and the text for the second edition. They were informed by somebody apparently uh, from Cloudy Nights um, that there was a huge demand for this book. And so they do a print on demand. And uh, I didn't know this, but uh, my friend Randall um, uh, through the RICs in Toronto, but a long-term friend. Anyway, he uh, he's a, a book person and often has sent me books in the past. And I asked him to keep an eye out for one of these. And somehow he stumbled upon the fact that you could order direct from Melbourne University Press. He ordered a copy and, and re- I think maybe he received it even and sent me the link and said, here you go. And uh, I placed the order. It was, I think it was $80. And I thought, oh, that must be American or something. And then they'll be shipping on top. And it was, it was no, it was, $80 Canadian shipped to my door, no import. Everything was, everything was included in that 80 bucks. And uh, I'll tell you, this, this is a book that's worth $80, everything in for sure. Hmm. Yeah. I'm excited to receive it. I ordered mine just a, a few days after you uh, placed your order. So I'm hoping that it arrives this coming week. Um, it sounds like a pretty cool book. So what's cool about this book? I'll get into that now. And I've only really just had it and kind of flipped through it. It's, it's more of a, I mean, it's, it's a reference book. Okay. What I mean by that is it's, it's not a book that really tells a story, although there are some stories in there. Um, so you're not going to pick it up and it's not like a page turn. You're going to read from, you know, cover to cover kind of thing. It, it, it goes through um, the constellations and it goes through um, the, the interesting objects that Hartung um you know, d- determined we're, we're interesting to observe. Um, but what makes this such a great book is that, um, well, Hartung was, was a great observer. Um, he died. I think, I think Shane, he died about the year you were born or something like that. Or really? anyway, yeah, he, he, you know, he's, he's been dead a while, but, uh, but this, this work lives on as basically the reference for, uh, for people that want to, uh, observe in the Southern hemisphere and it's still widely cited today. And I, I think that's why it had gone out of publication. Probably uh, Melbourne University Press probably just assumed that a book that was, um, you know, basically decades old, um, you know, even though they had revised it at one point, was, was probably just uh, still too far out of date um, to be of much use or, or interest to observers or, or whatever. But this stuff doesn't change, right? Those visual observers, it, it, you know, observations that are made, you know, 10, 20, 100 years ago. Um, when you're looking through the telescope, they're still, um, you know, just as interesting and just well worth reading. Um, don't you think? Oh, for sure. You know, there's, there's like, you know, the time scale of a human life and then there's the time scale of, of the universe, (laughs) you know, what, what we would consider to be old in our lifetime is, you know, super relevant still when it comes to astronomical purposes. So, um, I'm excited to get it. And I don't know if it's just like a Northern hemisphere bias that I have. Um, but it, it, I feel like there's not as many Southern hemisphere guides or, or, you know, books of interest, um, to talk about what to observe down there. Whereas, you know, Northern hemisphere, it seems like, you know, you, you there's just no end to it, right? There's, there's a ton of guides out there. Yeah. Um, so I'll talk about a few things. So, like I said, I've only really scratched the surface of it. it it's a good sized book. Um, you know, you know what it reminds me of? It's a little bit denser and a little bit better produced, but 
just kind of the book shape and feel in that is similar to Phil Harrington's touring the universe through binoculars, but it's Mm. a little bit, it's a little bit higher quality than that, I think. Um, but it talks, um, it has a bit of a bio on, on Hardhung, who I did really didn't know that much about, but he was born in 1889. Um, and then, uh, he was a professor of chemistry at Melbourne university, spent a short while living in England and had always had an interest in astronomy. Um, and, you know, had learned this guy and that sort of thing, but really was a dabbler up until his retirement in 1953, and then at that point, then he really dug in. And I mean, this is really an, an interesting thing because I know there's a lot of people out there um, that that kind of fit that mold, you know, and, uh, you know, particularly because my, my wife is, uh, is, is, is a researcher and, and she researches this kind of thing, you know, what, what do people do when they retire? Well, that's what, that's what Harting did is when he retired, he, uh, you know, sort of finished uh, a 12 inch telescope and, uh you know, wrote a comprehensive guide for observing objects from uh, 50 degrees north to the Southern Pole. Hmm. So what that's what makes this so interesting is that, um, you know, probably, I don't know, it's half or whatever, but a good portion of the Northern Hemisphere sky is actually contained in this text. Oh, that's wild. I, <laughs> I never would have suspected 50 degrees north in a Southern Hemisphere guide. Very interesting. Yeah, I knew that some things were in there just from my reading over, over time was, oh, that's weird that there's objects in whatever, like, I think I was reading something on Cetus recently. And okay, well, I guess that makes sense because it's below the the uh, celestial equator or whatever. Uh, and I would have assumed that it would be okay, um, constellations that would be at the celestial equator and further south or, you know, whatever, um, something to that effect. Um, but it's not, he goes, he goes reasonably far north. So he even has like a good bit on Origa, right. Um, and, and so it, it gives a different perspective. Um, and, and as well, it's, it's well done and sort of pieces through the objects and the objects are laid out kind of like in turn the universe through binoculars where he uh, talks briefly about the constellation and it's laid out by constellation, which I quite like. Um, and, you know, I guess the, the alternative way to lay out a book is by right ascension, which I always find a little bit challenging because, you know, you, you get not uh, a constellation like Eridanus and then, you know, you're kind of, you know, flipping um, back and forth, trying to piece together the different regions. But so I really prefer the ones that are, that are grouped by constellations, which seems to be sort of the dominant way to do it anyway. But, um, but yeah, he, he goes into a lot of detail with, uh, with what he saw through this 13 inch um, telescope that he kind of, uh, put together himself. It looks more like an open truss design on an equatorial mount in a roll-off of hmm. his of his own design, which is which is pretty cool. You think of a 12-inch truss design on an equatorial in a roll-off, maybe not being from something, uh, you know, I guess uh, from uh, the better part of uh, 70 or 75 years ago or something like that. It's pretty neat. Yeah, that is pretty cool. What was the uh, focal ratio? Do you know? Oh, I want to say it's like five or something. Wow. I could yeah, be wrong. Okay. It's, that, it's well detailed in there. That, that's also interesting too, because a lot of those older telescopes uh, would have longer focal lengths just because of the, I, I think it was just easier to grind to that standard, right? Yeah. As opposed to super fast optics. Yeah. And uh, what else is in there? Well, he, he goes into some good detail on um, the different types of objects to observe and and it is, it is a little bit more advanced. Like it's, it's, I, well, I mean, 
by advanced, I mean, for amateur astronomers, there's not a lot of astrophysics or anything like that in there, but um, like, like, you know, I like to like to observe all kinds of different things, whether they're open clusters or, or bright nebula or dark nebula or whatever. And he kind of goes into some of the details, like on dark nebulas and how to observe them and, you know, different things of, of this nature and, and just like the, the selection of objects. Um, some of them are pretty faint and extremely challenging. And, and that makes it, I think, uh, a very interesting text, um, you know, to, to have on, have on the shelf. So I'm, I'm super excited for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you've got me even more excited to receive it. So hopefully, uh, it comes soon. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, again, like you were, you know, I think in the, in the preamble, you said, well, I'm not, I have no plan. You know, I said, you know, you'll be excited to get this and you're like, well, it doesn't matter whether it comes, you know, tomorrow or in 10 weeks, because we're not going to the Southern hemisphere anytime soon. I'm like, well, then, you know, you can, you can observe tons of stuff from this book. Uh, you don't have to go anywhere. Well, well you should go do, you should go to a dark site. Yeah. 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 Of course. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So that's my bit on Hartung's and uh, I might even be saying his name wrong, but it's H-A-R-T-U-N-G-S. Could be Hartoon. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, worked on my uh, web uh, book or article or whatever this thing is just on interesting objects that uh that uh, reverend tw webb observed back in the mid 1800s and um one of the things i ran into working on this is that uh, he put out uh four different uh versions of this over a few decades he put out a copy in 15 1859 1868 i think 1873 and then 1881 and i don't know if he was reobserving or had different notes but Definitely there's differences between them all. And what I'm doing is I'm going through and taking a look for um, interesting uh, star uh, chains or groupings of stars or asterisms or uh, clusters or whatever that he noted as he was uh, writing his, his book, which is the celestial objects for common telescopes. Um, and then it was reissued uh, with a person by the name of Espen, who was uh, Webb's protege. And he, he was the editor in the 1917 edition, um, which was reprinted in, I think, like 62 or something by uh, AAVSO Mail. And uh, anyway, so kind of kind of threading through it to uh, uh, the, all those different editions to try to pull out um, what are some interesting star patterns, uh, maybe to take a look at just just because I think it's uh, he, he did find some of his own objects. And I think that uh, there's there's a few more treasures and star chains that are that are in there. So anyway, kind of working away at that. Cool. Yeah, that <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, that project, I think, is pretty cool. Um, just trying to understand what some of these interesting objects were that he, mm. uh, you know, made reference to and, and weren't necessarily the focus of his uh, primary work at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of interesting just to see like how how he was observing and and what he was observing. I also have the biography on him uh, that I bought used um, from the UK again, um, just like a brand new book. I think I paid like thirty dollars Canadian for it, so I've I've been really lucky at getting essentially new used books. I think it was still in the wrapper, and uh, you know for you know used prices or or half of used prices in the case of these two books because. I think I've seen Hartings for twice the price I paid for it. And same with the web biography. Um, let's see, had some emails this week. Yeah. Yeah. We had some, uh, some, yeah, quite a few actually. And, and uh, some really interesting ones too. 
Yeah. So um, one of the more recent ones that kind of made me dig into things a little bit more because I'd missed this was uh, Chef Ozzy had sent us a list of um, different resources for seeing different things um, in the nighttime sky. Um, you know, there was some from like, I think like Earth and Sky and I'm not going to get into the whole list. He sent like a great big uh, list there. And um, what I what I really enjoy seeing is what other people have been able to pull out. Um, but I think in going through that and listening to some other um, podcasts, one of the things that, that I'd missed was um, the occultation of Mars by the moon when Mars is very close to opposition. Now, mm-hmm. I, I think because this happens in UTC, I think, and I don't want to point out these other sources, it's cool that, that people have have uh, sorted this out, but I think people are reading it maybe from the um, ephemeris, um, uh, the astronomical phenomena or the astronomical ephemeris that are, that are put out each year by whether it's, um, you know, one of the UK groups or the, uh, oh, what's it called? The uh, US, I know, United States Naval Observatory. Um, but everybody was saying it's on December 8th, which is, I think, the date of the Mars opposition, but it's not. Mars will be occulted um, by the moon, the moon will pass in front of Mars in uh, North America on the seventh. Uh, I ran it in my software, and it's definitely the seventh. I think it's around. I think it starts around eight o'clock here. So it's this is going to be a great event to see um, here in North America because it's gonna it's gonna start basically uh, just after dinner, uh, visible from cities anywhere. Uh, you can see a, a good. Um, reasonably good horizon is going to be nice and high in the sky too. And you're going to see that moon pass in, in front of Mars. And that's really going to be quite spectacular on the 7th of December of uh, 2022. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited for the whole Mars opposition. Um, just uh, as we talked about um, on, I think, I don't know, a podcast or two ago, um, it'll be nice and high in the sky for us Northern hemisphere people. So, um, you know, the, the less atmosphere will, will be awesome, you know, to, uh, hopefully get some high detailed observations like last opposition, you and I had some amazing, uh, observations of Mars. And I think a big part of that was cause it was a, a fairly, it was fairly high in the sky, but, uh, yeah, I'm excited for this one. Cool. Uh, and then I, I picked out a couple emails here, uh, for us to, for us to read, um, I've been, you know, having some personal, uh, correspondence with uh, one of our, uh, listeners, uh, Flippy down in Brazil. And so I, I thought maybe I'll read this one and, and then you could read the one from Eric. How does that sound? Yeah. Sounds good. All right, cool. Um, my apologies, Flippy. I, I kind of edit this a bit because <laughs> I should say this. So he is a, I'm, I'm going to say this and, and I could have this wrong, but in my opinion, he's like a coffee expert. Like he has like coffee certifications and um, like he's stu- really studied. Um, I think he has a master's or, or higher, higher education degree in, um, you know, I think like plant sciences or something like that. I, I did look up what, what he had in one of his uh, emails. And anyway, so we, we were having some conversation. I'm quite interested in coffee. I don't really know that much about coffee, but I sure do love to drink it. And uh, so I've kind of edited this down. Um, what was interesting, though, is both he and Charles had sent us um, observations, or at least sent me anyway, because we we're having I was having a bunch of different conversations with different people. Um, they'd sent observations made with their spouses. And then Felipe actually sent a really, really cool picture 
of of his spouse uh, looking through his uh, uh, daub. I think it's like 160 millimeter daub, give or take. And um, she's kind of silhouetted. It looks it's really, really a neat shot. It's like one of those pictures I want to get permission from him to use uh, when I teach my astronomy classes, um, just because it looks so cool. Um, I think they were looking at uh, Venus or one of the planets or, or something. Um, and then he was kind of ribbing me about, uh, you know, getting cold and putting a t-shirt on while it was like minus 30 here or something like that. Anyway, I'll, I'll kind of read it now. So uh, Felipe says, hello, Chris. Um, he's working on a project. Oh yeah, that's the other thing. He's working on this project to automate tracking on his job. He likes to do uh, both visual and then some astrophotography. He's always sending me, I always think of them like, you know, people in the Southern hemisphere that the sky is upside down. And I always think, oh, he's sending me upside down pictures of Orion again, because it's all, everything's reversed. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so I'm always like, what is wrong with, oh wait, yeah, he's in the Southern hemisphere. That's why they're upside down, which is kind of neat, right? I mean, it's kind of neat to see it. Like you recognize Orion, but you're like, what is happening here? Um, and I'm sure like for people that come from the Southern hemisphere, they look at Orion or our photos of Orion. They're like, why do they print Orion upside down? Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, so he's trying to create this uh, tracking using some, uh, you know, uh, slow motion controls and that sort of thing. Anyway, so he says uh, about the project on slow motion control, talk to a friend. Now he wants to build a telescope too and has some experience with electronics. There are some people here in Brazil that developed a project and they have a website with all the instructions for everyone that knows Portuguese. Although I do not know any Portuguese. I've known, I've known a few people from Brazil over time. Um and, and I know that they speak Portuguese in Brazil. That's about, that's about my extent of knowledge. Um, but I was able just to just use an extension in my um, Google Chrome and, and it translated perfectly. It just was like perfect English pretty much. Um, he goes on to say, I'm really interested in trying uh, to build it. And he said he has uh, lots of time to uh, work on this, uh, you know, and try to start sorting it out. And so he said, he's sending the link. I have the link there in the show notes. Might be cool if you can... Uh, send that out, Shane, maybe other people are interested in that or have some feedback. It looks like they're trying to build a bit of a group uh, online that's working on this. And so it's a website that's accessible to anybody. And then he said, uh, I finally had two nights of good seeing, uh, though Christmas Eve was terrible, but on Christmas day, uh, just wanted to get out of the house. I also wanted to test my culmination skills. So getting his uh, daub optically aligned, he said, I've been learning how to do it correctly. So I took the telescope out to that open space by the cliff, and I just looked at the scenery, even got to see some fireworks uh, in the big city nearby. By the time it got dark, the clouds had taken over as just as expected. Same, same here. It's like, doesn't matter. You're in Brazil. You're in Saskatchewan in the middle of Canada. As soon as it gets dark, those clouds come in. Eh? So I came back home. Then about 11 o'clock, I looked outside. To my surprise, the sky was clear. I couldn't miss the opportunity. I stayed up until 2 a.m. and looked at the Orion Nebula, M41, NGC 2362, which I think we talked about last week. Also listening to you, uh, he gave a try at Cirrus, but at the time, uh, he was too tired and very frustrated. Uh, so he decided to take some pictures of his phone. And after 1 a.m., the temperature was lower and the dew point uh, had been reached. So he couldn't get a sharp image. Uh, any longer. Then he wrote, yesterday afternoon, the weather was very nice. And so I prepared myself to go out and observe being a weekend. The big plateau was very crowded, but uh, he remembered another spot that was uh, had a clear view to the southern sky and is better protected from the lights from the city and the road. Uh, he said, I went there with my wife. And as soon as we arrived, he remembered about Comet Leonard. Um, 
but he said it just wasn't going to be able to get observed. Didn't see why. I think maybe the location wasn't good for making that observation. So we started looking at the landscape, and as soon as we could see Jupiter, we pointed the telescope upwards. And as the sky was getting darker, we started to see the brightest stars for Cirrus, then Canopus, and then Echinar. Do you know what Echinar is? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I can't remember it offhand, but um, it rings a bell, that's for sure. Pretty sure that's the brightest star in Eridanus. When I went and observed in Florida, I went and observed Echinar once. Uh, he goes on to say, after some time, the sky was even darker and we could see the constellations and even some fuzzy spots. The first one we looked at was the Omicron Valorum cluster. Uh, it is not a very nice name these days, ha ha ha, because of the Omicron variant. So, um, but the Omicron Valorum cluster is super interesting because uh, that's one of the early um, groupings of stars and fuzzy spots that people were first um, noticing and pointing telescopes at. He then says that he went on and moved up to NGC 2516, I could see it easily with my naked eye as a small fuzzy cloud above the uh, star in Carina. He said the Avior star in Carina. So I'm not that familiar with Carina as a constellation. So um, I don't know that I've ever observed that star. Through the eyepiece, there was a very bright star at the center and several others around it. And then he wishes me good luck observing it if I ever get to the Southern Hemisphere. It uh, goes on to say, by the time I looked at NGC 2516, some lightning started in the north and the wind was picking up. And same as the day before around 11 o'clock, the, uh, the sky cleared to the north. And now I remembered um, that a niche uh, was going to, or th that he would be able to split Cirrus um, by trying for Rigel first. And he managed to do that at 200 magnification and said that that was really interesting. Because I think you had recommended that um shane to try for rigel first yeah it's in uh, a lot of guides uh for anybody trying to observe uh cirrus um that that rigel is just a good analog to get an idea of the um separation uh you know how close uh, they will be yeah then he said uh it sounded like he wasn't successful at seeing and splitting cirrus um said he got really frustrated and trying to take pictures and i have yet to figure out how to make um, the stacking software work. He said, I realized that I need to start journaling my sessions and writing down what I see. And then he closes by saying, yesterday I thought I prepared well for my observing session at that spot, but I have to rethink some strategies. I knew that insects would be the worst problem. So I put on long pair of socks, clothes, shoes, and jeans. I was only in a t-shirt, but I think I was too confident in my bug repellent. <laughs> so he said that, uh, He's sitting there writing with more than 20 bites on his left elbow. <laughs> and he get covered in, in mosquito bites and closes by saying clear sky. So anyway, thanks. Thanks so much, Philippe. Really appreciate your, your emails. And he sends these, these amazingly lush and beautiful photos um, of where he, where he goes uh, to this nearby um, area. That's, that's reasonably dark um, in Brazil and it's, you know, that the contrast for me is, is just incredible because it, it just seems to line up that when he's sending me the photos, um, you know, usually it's when we're having like a bit of a snowstorm or a snow squall come through. So it couldn't be more different. So he's like in this beautiful lush environment and it's just a stark contrast to like the, the uh, just the ever present, um, you know, white space that's around us. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
Eric sent us an, an observation. Do you want to kind of yeah. pick up? Yeah. So Eric is uh, an observer in our neighboring province. Uh, he's in Calgary. And um, uh, he sent us a few emails about this, which was pretty cool because I had never thought about even attempting this observation. But um, as uh, I think all of our listeners know, the James Webb Space Telescope uh, launched just recently, I think on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, something like that and um, is now on its mission or, or voyage to its final orbiting position, which is quite a ways out. Um, so Eric uh, had the uh, uh, ambitious observation goal of, of trying to see the James Webb Space Telescope on its way out. Um, so he sent a, a couple of emails. One was a failed attempt, but then uh, we got this one, and, and uh, it's, uh, it's really quite incredible, I think. So I'll just start reading it. So, uh, Chris and Shane, amazing news. We were able to see the James Webb space telescope from 750,000 kilometers away. That's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he did send us a sketch of, of, uh, uh, his observations as it moved against the background stars, which was pretty cool. Um, so back to the email, uh, according to the uh, James Webb Space Telescope blog, uh, the full width of the sun shield material had been successfully extended late yesterday evening. Uh, this was likely the only chance for ever hoping to see the James Webb Space Telescope visually uh, before it doubles its current distance from Earth and likely fades completely from view. Uh, as soon as the clock struck midnight and we rang in the new year, uh, 2022, uh, my friend Phil and I texted each other and both of our spouses had already gone to bed by 12.01 a.m. So under uh, a sky filled with stars and fireworks, we headed out to the observatory and got to work. Um, so we arrived at the observatory by 1 a.m. Uh, we were all set up and on the field by 1.40 a.m. Uh, it took a bit of hunting within the field to find the suspected object, but within 10 minutes after finding it using 210 times magnification, uh, we were certain that a small faint point of light was moving. Uh, we tracked it for about an hour and a half, and I was able to plot its positional change against the background stars. Uh, it was fortuitous that it happened to be passing a nice little uh, dipper asterism uh, of 12th magnitude stars. Uh, because the James Webb Space Telescope's position uh, relative to this asterism was very obvious each time we returned to it every five to 10 minutes or so. Uh, the cold temperature was a serious battle at minus 29 degrees Celsius. Uh, photography was completely out of the question. Uh, gear would not function even if we had tried. Uh, so sketching to the rescue. Uh, it would have been nice if I could have made uh, equally spaced observations uh, but we needed extended moments of warming up in the clubhouse just so we could get some feeling back in our hands and feet. Uh, Unacceptable. Is, Unacceptable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, he goes on to say that this is probably one of the most exciting faint points of light I've ever seen. Uh, best thing I have seen all year. I just wow, can't wow. comprehend how it can be possible to see something so small over such a vast distance. Uh, truly amazing and inspiring. Uh, I can't wait to see what the James Webb Space Telescope will now show us. Uh, Happy New Year to you both. So incredible observation. Uh, like I said, I never even thought of attempting it, um, but it's really cool to hear, you know, again, we, we've kind of mused about this, Chris, but like just the various things that people are observing. And, uh, you know, this is, um, I, I would be curious to hear if anybody else observed it um, because, you know, it certainly 
you, you won't get any more opportunities for this one. And uh, I just think it's super cool. Yeah, that is a really, really unique observation. I mean, that's just like really, really amazing. Not, not only to see it, but uh, the experience of going out in the cold like that. Um, and setting the goal and missing it the first night and then catching it the next. I, I've had so many observing experiences um, like that, um, you know, trying to see difficult things and, and taking multiple nights um, to see it. So, yeah, it was, it was really cool to see. It's, it's, a neat, um, it's a neat sketch. Are you able to, to share that with, uh, with our listeners through the, uh, through the Twitterverse? Uh, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that probably be. should check with Eric first, but yeah. Yeah. I, I think he's, yeah. Yeah. Check with him first, but I think, I think he's cool. Like if he sends us stuff, I think he's fine with us sending it out. Um, but yeah, yeah. Verify it and that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah. What, what an amazing observation that is. That is just super, super neat. And, uh, you know, congratulations on, on doing that. I also like, there's kind of like a meta component of everybody's looking forward to the observations made with the James Webb space telescope and, and, and he was able to go out and make an observation of the James Webb Space Telescope. So that that really cracked me up on, on a different level, I think, maybe than what was intended. But I thought that was really like uh, an amazing observation. And I thought there was a little bit of sense of, of humor or irony or something in the fact that he went and observed um, the telescope that everybody's waiting to, to see observations from. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe just one quick point of reference here, you know, at 750,000 kilometers away from earth, it's roughly twice the distance of the moon. And I forget how big this thing is. Like it's, it's tiny, uh, you know, again, in proportion to uh, things that we look at. Um, so it's just, uh, it, it, the, the fact that it's the James Webb telescope is super cool, but the, uh, when you put some of these numbers in front of you too, it's like, wow, that's a really impressive observation yeah i'm just looking up to see if i can see the size of the shield is the sun's shade stretches 69.5 feet or 21.2 meters long and 46.5 feet or 14.2 meters wide um so it's big in terms of you know your your house you know it's definitely a lot bigger than my house um but uh but it's not like impossibly big. It's about the same size as the hill that I observe on. So this is the equivalent of seeing the hill that I observe on from what, like twice the distance of the moon away or something. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. That that's really quite something. Yeah. That's cool. Very, very cool. Huh? Anything else uh, to add to this episode chain? Nope. That's all. Yeah, very good. Yeah, we had some good, we had a good chat over the break, you know, working out a few things. We tried a different way to uh, record our our uh, podcast. It was not successful. <laughs> nope, that failed. But we still have a, another thing that we're considering, uh, which might also enhance our YouTube channel, which to be perfectly honest, we don't put much attention on, but yeah, more, more to come on that too. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how we can evolve that. Yeah. So the one thing we tried was the, um, using the Podbean app, uh, to, to do sessions. And now although, you know, I mean, I think, I think I call it a bit of a failure at the time and you're like, it is, but, it, and this was your idea. So make sure you get credit for this. Cause I thought this was a really good idea because we've, we've been asked, um, for this in the past, 
which is to try to do some recording of our observing sessions. And it would actually work really well for that. I think that that was, uh, was your idea, Shane. And I think that is a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to give that a try um, in a few months when it's maybe a little warmer. Yeah. Because once I get internet out of my place, then what we can do is, is we could set up a computer inside and then we can join the session with our cell phones and then just wander up the hill and, and uh, do a bunch of recordings thing, maybe, maybe do some editing down to, uh, uh, to get them together into, into a podcast form. And anyway, give, give us some different options. And the quality was really good. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty darn good. Yeah. So, but yeah, we, we continue to try to uh, work and, and tweak on, on things because, um, you know, people have, have been very generous in their Patreon donations. And uh, what this allows us to do is have some flexibility in, in spending. And uh, originally we had, had purchased some packages and we're looking at purchasing additional packages and additional softwares to, uh, to increase the quality of the show and to, uh, uh, to, to give us different types of, of content. And as well, like it would be cool to, you know, sit down and have conversations with other observers and just kind of uh, take a cell phone and throw it on the table kind of thing. And, and, you know, to just have those kind of conversations as well, I think gives us that kind of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's nice to have some options for this stuff. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks Shane. And thanks so much uh, to everyone for listening. Uh, be sure to subscribe in your podcatching software. And if you can send a review in your podcatching software, that would be cool too. And we're always excited to get observing emails or any other emails or photographs or whatever you're wishing to send to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.